Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, our weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. This week, we sit down with Sean George, the CEO and co-founder of Invite, one of the most innovative and cutting-edge companies in the medical genetic space. Founded on the principles of affordable genetic testing, clinical-grade accuracy, and transparent reporting practices, Invite is enabling a paradigm shift in the diagnostics industry. On this episode, Sean and I focus on DNA sequencing cost declines, how genetic testing is fundamentally transforming cancer care, and why aggressive investment in driving R&D is a must for biotech companies. I think our story is super exciting. I think what most people, when they're like, hey, let's do this piece about, you know, and it's like, well, we're investing in lowering costs. And, and then people are just like, hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think for many years, it doesn't seem so exciting. It's like, it's like I said, it's digging trenches. Like, wow, you're okay. That seems pretty simple. It is. <laughs> Why is anybody doing it? Right. It costs a lot of money. And no, yeah, I think nobody, you bring up a really yeah. good point. It's like, if you look back at, let's say 2003, you know, the conclusion of the human genome project. And over that decade that that project went on, you know, it cost roughly what, $3 billion cumulatively to produce that first reference sequence. The point about lowering costs that I think is so interesting, it's like, you know, obviously Illumina and many companies threw a lot of investment capital at figuring out how to bring this cost down, Mm -hmm. ostensibly to allow, you know, genomic sequencing and precision medicine to be available to a much wider patient population. And as we went through the years and walked down orders of magnitude and cost, it's still cost prohibitive at scale at $100,000 a genome. But now that we're in the most interesting you know, basically the most interesting order of magnitude, right? The $1,000 to $100. It's like all of a sudden, the economics of all these tests begin to make sense. And yet you still get some other players who say, okay, well, maybe we can ride this a little bit more slowly and eke out all the revenue that we can by staying at the top end of a reimbursement envelope versus the strategy that Invite has taken where, you know, let's throw that out. Let's throw that formula out the window and invest very heavily in, in really writing the cost curve down better than any other company mm-hmm. has. Yeah, that's right. I think, look, don't get me wrong, where the massive inefficiencies in healthcare lead to really high reimbursement rates for a given test, we take it. But more importantly, not waiting for all of that reimbursement to come at some point in the future and delivering the value that we can to the people that need it now. Yeah. It turns out if you just look at it totally orthogonally and you say like, let's not wait to maximize the return on every single test that we could possibly run. Instead, let's ask how many people on the planet could really use genetics as a central feature of their healthcare as a utility. And the answer is, oh, I don't know, one to 2 billion. And so then you say, well, if we could just get a couple hundred dollars per year from one to 2 billion people for the use of genetics as a you know mainstream utility, that's a great opportunity. Let's go do that. Oh, and by the way, 
in doing so, you'll prevent a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering along the way for friends, families, loved ones, people, you know, people who don't even know. And so kind of if you just take a step back and look at it that way, it makes a ton of sense. I think our experience for the last 10 years, if you look at it from the typical lens of our industry, it, yeah, it seems a little off. I think as every year has gone by, people have seen what's happening. People have seen the volume curves. People have seen the impact it's having. People have started to see how comprehensive genetics kind of flowing through healthcare is going to change things in ways that you know people are still kind of finally getting their heads around. So yeah, in that sense, it starts with just looking at it from a different perspective and asking different questions than everybody else. But I think it also, you can look to other industries and see how technology and innovation plays through the cycle. And it's not hard, you know, you can just go back, you know, look at automobiles at the early 1900s. You can look at, we all are certainly more familiar with what happened with the cost of microprocessing, the cost of computing in the late 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and then all of the competition therein. And then as that price just kept decreasing, every single application layer on top of it exploded in both the investment, the headway that all those companies made, and then ultimately how they completely changed the world, which by the way, we're still this technology revolution that kind of began in the late 60s. It's still working through. And I would point to our industry as a good example. I think our industry has finally begun receiving the impact of that technology revolution of the end of the last century. It is what we trade on. You know, we combine that with the genomics technology that you mentioned, the you know the sequencing technology, and the two of those together allow our business model to actually be conceivable. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Bringing up sort of what most people use as the benchmarking tool, using Moore's law and semiconductors right. to kind of outline the pace of innovation. The interesting thing that we've kind of noticed, and this applies to one to the vehicle analogy you brought up, but also with sequencing, it's that. It's actually, it's a more nuanced way to look at it when you study the cost decline of sequencing as a function of of how much sequencing we're doing, right? Almost looking at it like a learning curve, which the way we model that is with Wright's law. So effectively what happens is for every cumulative doubling of sequencing that we do, there's a finite drop in that cost, right? And so on a time series, it ends up being something like 40 or 50% per year. But it's actually kind of a delicate interplay that I think you just brought it up, which is Sure, Illumina can innovate and put a new piece of hardware out on the market, but then the tables kind of turn over to you guys or to companies that are saying, okay, well, actually, let's zoom out a little bit and look at the entire workflow and see how we can innovate from a point of automating sample prep and accessioning and building more on the software layer that happens downstream from the sequencing. Right. And so you have to be able to contend with all of that. So there's almost like an interesting ebb and flow. It's not so much that Illumina can just push these sequencers out and then everybody can do it. Because if everyone could just buy a sequencer... Believe me, many have tried. If many so, have tried, there would, so, be, yeah. there would be more. No, I think yeah. that's, a, that's a very important perspective because, look, me being one of the, you know, many of us, the Human Genome Project, as it started up, as it got going, as it kind of had the first results coming out and then it's kind of ended up, you know, early 2002, 2003, a ton of frustration that, you know, well, great. So now what is happening? Not much was changing a whole lot. And the constant refrain kind of, I'd say, in the you know late 2000s, 2010, was, well, that's because, yeah, you can generate all this data, but no one knows what to do with it. And that, I think, is a summary point of exactly what this company, Invitae, has tried to solve. It's like, okay, well, actually, clinicians know what to do with the information. What you have to do is take the three gigabases of genomic data and filter it down into the format that the clinicians are used to acting on that people can actually understand. And turns out that's hard. Turns out that is incredibly difficult to do across all these disease areas. 
while previously and still to this day, most of the incumbents in the space rely on intricately complex handoff of information and expertise between people in a pretty much a non-scalable high cost fashion, you can apply technology and build a text. You know, what we've done is build a software stack underneath that question to take all of the variants come off, interpret them, format the results into a report that the clinicians are used to, can act on, that patients can understand. And yeah, that's hard. It's costly. It's taken us 10 years to get to where we are today. And even today with a, you know, if you take our testing average price of around $500, our COGS are down around 220 230 around there. 40% of that is still that variant interpretation and reporting. Mm-hmm. So that's right. a, it's a good window into, well, where are the bottlenecks? And you're right. There's the, again, I often think of the sequencing as kind of like microprocessor. And then our particular application space is medical genetics. There are others, infectious disease, environmental sampling, defense, I suppose, right? Agriculture, all these application industries that will benefit from the rampant you know, decline in sequencing costs they've all got to solve their own problems. And you know, ours was particularly the very interpretation and reporting. Now there's an interplay, right? This is where, you know, again, extending the analogy in the 60s, there were, you know, 200 fair children, right? And they were all building out capabilities and processing, microprocessing. Ultimately, one won out, Intel. And Intel, you could argue, and I mean, it's always difficult looking back, revisionist history and everything, but it's pretty clear that by a, a myopic, almost maniacal focus on reducing the cost of compute, that's where Intel A, won in their sector of the industry, and then B, enabled all of these other application spaces. So if you look at sequencing, it's kind of the same thing. When next generation sequencing kind of started hitting, call it 15 years ago, there were five or six players. They were competing ferociously, driving down the cost together. And the sequencing curve actually was moving faster than Moore's law. And by the way, as that begun is when people like myself started thinking like, hey, this is going to change things. And that's why we started the company. That's why we started Invitae. Hey, sooner than later, it's going to be as expensive to sequence the entire genome as it is to sequence a single gene today. That's going to change things. Let's build a technology layer on top of that to really change healthcare. Of late, that curve has slowed down a bit. We could have a whole discussion about why competition is good and every American industrialist should encourage it because it's not only good for customers, it's good for companies. That's a separate topic. But nonetheless, the prices are now to the point where you can ask some of these broader questions. I would say it can always get lower. You know, right now, if we could run a clinical grade genome for every sample that came in the door, uh, you know, 500,000 or so this year, likely, we think we can do a million or so samples next year. If we could run a genome on every single one of those, the game would be yet another level different, right? We're doing great good now by delivering information that otherwise people never would have got. But if we could do a genome in every sample instead, we could really start bending the curve on a population level, on a family level, on an individual level. And that's where you can kind of look forward. And that is going to happen at some point. We'll continue to work on that other side of that 40% of COGS that is this, you know, the interpretation and reporting. Because as you start running genomes on everybody, that interpretation reporting burden starts moving up exponentially and you've got to be able to handle it. Right. Absolutely. And I think the variant interpretation step is one of the most important, I think, when you start to look at what the consumer market looks like. You know, we just pushed out a report basically doing a pretty intensive study of some of the false negative and false positive rates that a lot of the genotyping based companies will be putting out. And this triage where, you know, you kind of have to go down the route of like caveat mTOR, where the producer of the data doesn't have a very, let's say, robust quality control pipeline, feeds that over to a third party, which, you know, again, points the finger at the data generator. And then there's like a back and forth. So what ends up happening is people get false results. They get a lot of anxiety from these false results. And 
you know, at the end of the day, I think it also muddies the waters a little bit of genetic testing. So I think especially when you start looking at a, a population scale effort, like the one that you mentioned, you know, potentially doing whole genomes of every sample that comes through the door, it's like those very rare potentially pathogenic variants are going to start showing up a lot more. So how are you able to, you know, functionally resolve those on a case by case basis? Right. That's what we do every day. That is what variant interpretation reporting is. We've been investing for 10 years to be able to do that at a scale and a cost that is, you know, was unthinkable. And frankly, I'm not sure anybody else can do today. We actually just recently bought a company that had an, you know, it has an AI classifier to help resolve variants of unknown significance. We've added it to our pipeline since, and we just continue to invest in the ability to do that. So that's a good example of where that tech stack underneath it will help move more of that information to the benefit of patients. You've still got to translate it to exactly what clinicians are used to getting a clear set of instructions or guidance for patients. And I think that, you know, that you mentioned this, the problems that have arisen recently in some of the, you know, kind of this question of like, well, are they false positives? Are they false negatives? Are people getting the whole picture? Are they not getting the whole picture? This is something that, again, we've, we've been aware of for some time, you know, genetics is complex. A lot of people don't know much about it, but when you think about it, you know, I don't know, looking at a computer or a phone, I don't know much about the core technology there, but it works. Well, it works most of the time. I think, you know, our view is that genetics kind of needs to be the same way. If you're going online and you're going to say, hey, I'm worried about breast cancer, when you go online and order our test, our test answers the question, do you have genetic risk for breast cancer or not? And it answers it full stop and it answers it in a way that, you know, is the best currently cutting edge in terms of quality and the use of technology you can get. If you expose all the complexity and the technology underneath it to the customer by way of saying, well, this part of it was you know, generated in this lab and we can't be sure what the quality was, or the comprehensive answer only applies if you're of a certain ancestral background. And if not, you probably need to do another test to make sure you know, that you've already kind of lost the customer in the process and haven't actually delivered the actual product or service, which is you're concerned about genetics what your risk is, is it causing something in your family? And there needs to be an answer. It either is a cause from genetics or currently medical knowledge today, we cannot rule it out. So, you know, you and your clinician we can keep working on it. Right. So I definitely want to transition in a little bit to oncology. But one thing that you mentioned, I want to touch on just for a second, which is to what extent is sort of the ethnicity specific reference genome issue kind of a gating factor for more widespread adoption, not just in the US, but in the ex-US market. So, you know, in this case, just for our listeners, every time that you would be doing one of these screens or one of these tests, you're measuring your results up against a reference. You know, in this case, you can think about it like a genetic ruler, right? A genome that does not have, you know, those same mutations that you'd be looking for in a case where, you know, you're going after a specific risk set. So the issue becomes that if all of your rulers are, I think, something like 80% of them are from Northern Caucasian ancestry or, or something like that. Does that mean that your tests are less accurate for maybe someone who is of a different ethnic you know, region or heritage pattern? So how is that kind of an issue for you or for other companies in the space? Yeah, it is definitely an issue. Again, it's an issue that is known and it is manageable. And in the context of doing very interpretation reporting for medical genetics, it's a part of the process. Um, this, it gets a little, <laughs> probably a little more detailed than your average people would want to get into. Where that comes into play in a huge way is in the use of common SNPs and inference for, uh, you know, kind of these multiplicative additions of common SNPs that run through the population that confer, you know, modest odds ratio, hazard ratio, risk, you know, kind of 1.5, 1.3, some of them, even if you add them all up, they get up to three extra risk from the average population. 
distinct from variants, for example, run of the mill on a daily basis in NVIDIA, we deliver variants that are kind of 30x, 40x, 80x the population risk, what historically people have called Mendelian genetics, as opposed to the common genetics. Now, in these common variant genetics, this is where these ancestral populations really come into play because the original math and the hazard ratios assigned were done so using a select number of ancestral populations as the references, and then most of them were Caucasian. Uh, and thus, you know, given the same SNPs in two different people, if you have a different ancestral background, it might confer different risk. And so that's where it's applied there. In the medical genetics that we do, the reference genome, uh, of course, is a collection or a small number of humans that were used for the reference genome, Northern European. And so when those variants are found and it's not exactly clear if they're causing the disease or not, the ancestral background is taken into account just to make sure, hey, let's just make sure we're not looking at a variant that, for example, is unseen in the Northern European population, but actually has a 15% allele ratio in any population ancestral group uh, from the Asian continent, right? And that's where you can get in trouble if you say, oh, it's an ultra rare variant. This must be the cause of this disease. But you failed to mention, oh, wait a second. That actually, the person is of Asian ancestry, according to their clinician themselves. Um, frankly, you can also look at the other alleles to you know exactly where they are with our ancestral informative alleles. And then for you know to deliver that information and not take that into account, that's just bad medicine. So that's where you have to keep track of that. I would say, and if I can make a plug, ethnicity is actually not a scientific concept. According to genetics, there's no such thing as race. Ethnicity is a cultural concept. You know, where the ancestral lineage of your genome is relevant to medical genetics, kind of as, as we've been discussing. But I think what is pretty clear to most people in the space is, you know, any individual is an amalgamation of allele frequencies that really is kind of a a spread in the human global population. And yes, there are groupings of certain alleles that people call race today or ancestral background today, but it's really fuzzy. And yeah, certain population bottlenecks and certain kind of, you know, exclusionary uh, reproduction over, over history has created pockets of, of kind of relatively same allele frequency sharing. But for the most part, humans are just one big bag of allele frequencies from one spectrum to the other. And they, some of them define, you know, physical features that you can see. Some of them define biochemical features you can't see. But yeah, race and ethnicity and genetics is not, there's really no such thing. Yeah. Anyway, that's the yeah, plug, no, that's that's the plug for a, a way to think about it. That's interesting. Well, I mean, universally amongst amongst all of this, you know, whatever way you see it, everybody is interested in figuring out, you know, what their risk for cancer is. I mean, this is something that affects everybody in one way, shape or form. And it's also something that I'm, I'm glad that we can talk about in a very open way, just because... You know, I feel like sometimes um, the space that should be the most easily approachable, you know, healthcare, it's going to impact everybody, you know, personally or a family member. And so ideally, at least logically, the way I think about it, it should be the one that is the least kind of fenced with high level vocabulary and with big egos or whatever. But it actually ends up being kind of the opposite in many ways. So I'm glad that we can have this discussion. And I think that oncology is one space that I'm, I'm you know, terribly interested in. A lot of the, the companies that we track are, are in the oncology space, whether it's for therapy matching or for recurrence monitoring. And so just sort of zooming out a little bit and taking a 40,000 foot view of what cancer care looks like now versus let's say five years from now, what are some of the biggest paradigm shifts that you see for, let's say on a patient centric, somebody who's entering into the beginning of a diagnostic funnel and going through the steps where they're trying to gauge, say, predisposition all the way through, say, recurrence monitoring. You know, what are some of the biggest areas that you see changing in that workflow, at least from a diagnostic perspective? And we can get into therapy later. But. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I can tell you what we are doing now. 
Well, I would tell you what we're we're building now, which we've talked about before. Is you know this is very quickly now the world we see emerging. And if you think about it, it just again, it's a simple observation: is there are a lot of people worrying about cancer. There's the basic stuff, and again, if you've been in the diagnostic industry long enough, you you do you do run into the crabby clinician that's kind of like, look, all of this fancy, you know, multi thousand dollar testing. I tell you what, stop smoking. That's what you should do <laughs> if you're worried about cancer, right? You know, stop drinking so much. You know, get some more sleep. You know, once you can kind of get outside of that discussion. By the way, it's an interesting discussion, and it warrants some revisiting. I think in general. But you get to then what can science and technology do? And there is where I think the heartbreak, you know, starts for us, or certainly you know, the reason we started the company. It's because there is absolutely knowable information in your genes that may or may not confer incredibly high risk for cancer. And so when I run into a family who someone at a relatively young age, you know, in their 40s, you know, early 30s, in their 40s, when I run into a family who has been stricken by cancer. And it's a surprise, you know, digging in a little more and understanding a little bit about their family. You understand, oh, wow, mom died of cancer, aunt died of cancer, sister got diagnosed five years ago at the age of 40. You know, when you dig into it and you think this, this is not, there should be no surprise here. The technology exists for a few hundred dollars to understand, you know, precisely if this person has a highly elevated risk of developing some cancer. And even to this point, if you run one of our cancer panels, it's to the point where not only can it tell you your elevated risk, it can tell you what type of cancers. Like you can actually look into and say, hey, you know, you're at specific risk for breast and ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer or skin cancer or lung cancer, or, hey, you've got one of these variants where it's multi-systematic. You know, we, typically you're at very high risk of cancer and we have no idea where it's going to show up. And the prevention and the monitoring regime can be set up accordingly. So why isn't that done for every single person on the planet? You know, recently uh, some papers came out where the American Society of Breast Surgeons basically saw what we've known for some period of time is that with current reimbursement guidelines, we are missing as many women as we are finding for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer testing. The ASBS recommended all women of a certain age should get this kind of testing to find out their genetic risk. It makes sense. Why isn't it happening? Why isn't for all of these other disorders? Why isn't everybody getting a genome sequenced? And then for the 15 to 20% of the population for whom that's going to seriously indicate risk for certain diseases that they can do something about one way or the other, you know, why isn't that happening? It's a few hundred dollars. If we could sequence genome on everybody, not only would it be a few hundred dollars, you could answer it comprehensively for all diseases. And I think that's where, again, sometimes the industry structure is such that that just wasn't going to happen in our lifetime the way that kind of things typically work. But if you look at it from a different perspective, if you could indeed get that information for everybody at a certain time in their life, you can answer those questions. It should be no surprise. The other situation you run into a lot are families with a child who has some disorder, typically been bouncing around the medical system, seen three or four different specialists, probably been diagnosed with whatever the disease was that that specialist was most familiar with. Wherein then you run a moderately sized disease panel and you find out, oh, the kid's got some lysosomal storage disorder or the kid's got, you know, why is their eyesight failing? Uh, you know, well, they've got an inherited retinopathy, right? And these things could have been known years and years and years ago for a few hundred dollars, uh, but they aren't. Now, again, with the breadth of the menu, for example, we have the cost, the accessible cost uh, that we've been able to drive it to. That's not going to be the case 10 years from now. You know, 10 years from now, that won't be the case. We won't be asking these questions. Why are all these people getting surprised by this disease in their family? Well, how could we not see this coming? No, 10 years from now, that won't be the case. We'll be on to other things. Cancer is a great example. 
not only do I believe 10 years from now, most people in modernized healthcare systems will understand precisely their risk of coming down if they have an, a highly elevated risk, you know, what the cancer is, roughly when it would manifest, roughly where, you know, what kind of system, what organ system, what biological system would be impacted. Then, you know, as soon as the cancer is discovered, it for sure in 10 years will be molecularly phenotyped, much as a small number of individuals today are getting done. Today, it's typically only a stage three, stage four, very late stage aggressive, the common five cancers is this being done for today. In 10 years time, it'll be anybody get a complete molecular characterization of the cancer that will lead to different therapy and treatment decisions. That individual will have some kind of monitoring test. Today, it's called liquid biopsy. Basically means you take a blood test, a non-invasive test and look for the recurrence of that cancer. And you'll be able to find it I don't know, months, years before you otherwise would for a lump to come back or a new metastasis to form. And at that point in time, yet again, a full molecular characterization will be done and yet again, treatment decisions will be made. And you know, if you think about the way that cancer treatment is heading, it's reminiscent to me of the way that HIV is managed these days. HIV used to be a death sentence. Today, you do molecular characterization of the virus, you come up with your best treatment, you knock it down, you look for recurrence, you see how it's evolved, you devise another therapy, and now people with HIV are living well in later ages in life. And that's the exciting thing about cancer. That's where we are going to get in the next decade, provided everybody keeps it up, keeps understanding, you know, keeps screening more and more individuals for their risk, generates more and more molecular phenotyping data, makes bold and aggressive treatment decisions to try to help people live longer, not just give them two or three more months of life. And then gets the cost down of the monitoring to the point where everybody who has had that treatment can monitor and for recurrence and then get back on top of it before it comes back into full-blown metastasis. Because there is a point today with the arsenal of therapies available, there is a point at which not much you can do with the cancer. It has become so complex and evolved to evade every possible thing. Your own body or the pharmacopoeia can be thrown at it. There's not much you can do about it. But everybody knows if you catch it early and treat it early, it's imminently treatable. And that's our view of where cancer is going. You know, we ourselves, you know, we've got the risk side of it taken care of. We'll have a somatic offering a molecular profiling offering next year, right? And it's going to be in the costs where, you know, most Americans who have cancer can afford it. And then we'll do the liquid biopsy monitoring and tying that all together, we think is what the future of cancer care is going to look like. And with all that data being made public, being pushed in the clinical research community, then what can happen, you have a whole new data set which you can go after new therapies, you know, target therapies, cellular therapies, biologics. You can look at the amount of data that I think is in the next three to five years going to be made available to oncology researchers to develop new therapies. It's exponentially more than all of that exists in the entire world today. So another question that I had, given your stance on investing so heavily in innovation at the potentially the sacrifice of near-term profit, right? Like you're putting yourself in a position where you are poised to take the lion's share of a market that's growing exponentially. How have investors responded to that type of behavior or strategy? Do you think that it is beginning to change as people understand more about just the sheer size of the markets that are getting unlocked by cheaper, better, faster? Or are they still a little bit hesitant about that transition? So I would say at the beginning, nobody liked it. So we pitched and, you know, I'd been in the industry a while. It wasn't like I was a totally unknown entity. And we went to raise money and, you know, pitched to 115 of the top healthcare investors in the world. And, you know, 113 of them said, no way, you know, horrible idea, right? No intellectual property barrier to entry, 10-year capital intensive execution play, no thanks. You know, low cost, better, faster, cheaper, race to the bottom, all that stuff. Oh, by the way, at the time there were still gene patents and the FDA was, you know, likely gonna shut the whole space down. So no, it hasn't been wildly popular for many years. 
I think what has happened, you know, we persisted and we also had, you know, people like Randy Scott around that had access to capital that we could push through where I think, frankly, others could not. And in doing so now, I would say the sheer size of the opportunity, the size of the global unmet need and an understanding of what that kind of mentality can accomplish. I think it's starting to work. It's starting to, I would say, convert maybe some of the more traditional life science investors that kind of thought it was a really poor use of capital for many years. And I think it's starting to attract other individuals who are really interested in healthcare and genomics and whatnot, but you know maybe can't see how the current industry or current structure is going to really do anything important and see this as a potential. It's a potential. Again, if you take a step back and look at the billions of people that could use the information, you're not going to get there with the way the industry was structured and the former approach to investment. I would also add you know, this concept of maximizing profit, carefully dialing in the return on investment, sizing up the market opportunity, going after the most profitable pools first, and then going to others. You know, All of that looks great on paper. I would like to make a plug. When you're actually building and running a company, you have to convince enough people let me put it this way. Someone told me this once. You have to suspend reality for long enough for enough people to try to do something different. You cannot be bothered thinking about these finer points of IRR and return on equity and time of capital and profit. Like, if you're trying to do something important and you're trying to do something different, it's hard enough just to get enough people to do it moving in the same direction for long enough to try to even get it done. And yeah, and I'm not making an apology for you know the abuse of capital. I'm just saying like it's harder than you think to dial in the perfect return to match the perfect market opportunity. And if you want to do anything of interest or anything really that you feel good about getting up in the morning doing, I often find it takes an approach that is different than the mindset of a lot of individuals who invest in the space. However, there are other individuals who understand that and make such investments accordingly and look for that kind of behavior. And I think you you can, I don't know, you could probably look out there and ask which type of investors make the best return and which don't by playing it safe. I think you could also kind of stake up even further. I've often wondered this, go back to the beginnings of corporation, the Dutch and the, for example, when this all started, you know, what is the purpose of profit is an interesting question that I don't think anybody seems to answer. I get asked all the time, like, oh, when is profitability? How profitable can you be? I understand as, as running a company, the power of operating cash flow, right? I get that. Profit to me, I kind of wonder, or I put it this way, companies have a purpose. They have to have a purpose. A company is incorporated amassing an amount of talent to do something. If you can do that and it makes a difference, presumably value will come. And again, if you, so long as you've got a reasonable business model, it'll, it'll generate enough cash flow to keep doing that thing and making it a difference and making an importance. At which point I think, profitability comes, return to shareholder comes. Again, I can't see how if you want to do something unique, if you're not focused on what is it you're trying to do, what is it you're trying to change. If you're instead always dialing in like, when are we profitable and how much is it going to be? I, you know, Honestly, I think with the technology cycles that are around these days, the pace of competition, you know, I think you just put at serious jeopardy the long-term livelihood of your business. You cannot be overly focused on that or someone two steps behind you is going to eat your lunch. I mean, you can look at cell phones. In the course of, I think, 12 years, it went from Nokia to BlackBerry to Apple, Samsung. Like BlackBerry was on top of the world for all of three years. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so that's actually a good example of where I'm sure if you're sitting around BlackBerry, it felt great and you're counting your profit. Oh, now we can just squeeze out a little more margin. Wrong call because there was a whole other generation coming of technologies, uh, different price points, et cetera. And I feel the same way now about the, the landscape as it is being set in healthcare. 
it's going to go the same way. So that's my view on that. It's, you know, you've got to have a good business model. You have to execute. You have to be able to generate cash flow. And the more, the better. Obsessing over profits in certain timeframes, I think you're going to get passed up. Anyway, that's, that's the exciting part of where we are at this point in time. And again, I think a lot of the enablement of that is a perspective that this information is vitally important. This information is better if it's on everybody, not just a few select people. And the more of it you get, the easier it is to understand exactly what's going on, find new pathways, find new treatments, et cetera. Yeah. And to your point on treatments, I think one trend that we've not really seen before that we're starting to see pick up, you know, you guys obviously leading the charge of this, but many other companies in the diagnostic space, I'm thinking Garden Health, for example, the amount of biopharma partnerships that have begun to pop up where, you know, let's say uh, companies in the rare disease space or in oncology will basically enter into this agreement where the data flows from the diagnostic partner to the therapeutic partner to help them make their clinical trials more capital efficient. And at the same time, you can make your algorithms for variant filtering more accurate by collecting you know, more frictionless data on those patient populations. I think the general trend, if you zoom back on this, is that as a consequence of all the sequencing and data generation that you're talking about, that the therapeutic landscape is going to shift more from a one-size-fits-all paradigm to a personalized paradigm, where the targets become more precise and more personalized to a patient's specific genetic environment. I absolutely see it that way. I certainly hope that happens sooner than later. Again, if you look at the mounting wave of technology all across that would push that into being, it seems unstoppable to me. I would say we're going to have to square away on a few things in this country, right? In a world where therapies are more and more personally tailored, the regulatory approach is going to have to change. And frankly, the regulatory approach is going to have to change or people are going to go overseas and get custom tailored therapies. That is what's going to happen. You can already kind of see it. I, however, have no doubt that we'll sort that one out. That one's fairly straightforward. The other is, I think, uh, again, we've taken a different view to the business model of molecular genetic testing, diagnostics, uh, genetics, whatever you want to call it. I do think the business model pharma is going to go through some changes here coming up as this moves to a more data-centered game. And again, this is where, and look, I am not a drug developer, but I hang around with a bunch of them. You know, If you think about therapeutic development in the last 30, 40 years, it's either been by accident, Viagra being the most famous example of a side effect of a cardiovascular drug that turned into like one of the largest drugs on the planet. No commentary on its medical necessity, but you know, it is either by accident or what you see is there tends to be the quote unquote hot hand. Like there are groups of individuals who repeatedly figure out pathways, targets, and get them in. And it can't be total luck. It seems to me as an observer, it seems like an art. There's a small number of individuals either buried deep in the pharma industry or you know, kind of repeatedly starting new pharma companies that keep finding new pathways and keep finding new targets. And the win rate is, it can only be explained, I think, by their, their great artists and they've figured it out. If you think about the last 20 years or so, and having seen and actually like dug into and invested in some of these myself, when you look at all of the technology attempts to do high throughput screening, high throughput XYZ, this, that, the other, it hasn't produced any more therapies than the artists, right? And I think the issue has been, we've been generating so much more data, but you've got the experts and the artists trying to sift through it uh, and people who, you know, it just, it's too much data going into the human process. I think what's nice now is again, with the last 30, 40 years of technology sector advances, we now have the capabilities to take this immense of data, phenotypic, genetic, demographic otherwise. And then you can now start putting it through non-human processes to start drawing conclusions and drawing connections. And that 
again, I'm the last guy to say like AI is going to solve, you know, cure the world. But I actually think if there's a hope that all of this data can be put to use, what I can assure you from our experience, all of this new information flowing through our pipelines it cannot be managed by humans the way it was before we started the company. And I imagine in pharmaceuticals, it's going to go the same way. All of that data, finding new pathways, new targets, I don't think it can be managed the way that it previously has been done. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting to see what, you know, AI as a feeling, and I know the details, but I think largely applying software, machine learning, AI, whatever the next right. <laughs> version of that yeah. is, is pretty exciting to kind of be on the cusp of it. You know, you've spent such a long amount of time investing very heavily in enabling better patient outcomes and making your tests more cost-effective and more accessible. What is exciting you about how these things are beginning to manifest and actually to hit with rubber hitting road here? You know, if you think about that stance that we've taken, it's born out of a frustration with where we are relative to, you know, what a lot of us was a seminal event in our like early careers, like the Human Genome Project is going to change everything. 15 years later, it's changed nothing. And so like, hey, we got to do something about that. So by leaning into it and aggressively going after what is the maximum utility we could deliver with this information, it's been incredibly fulfilling for all of us just to kind of actually see things like more and more people getting tested, the importance of genetics in healthcare coming to the forefront. All of that's happening because we just went ahead and started doing it. We didn't wait around for the system to realize the value of the information. Do I think all of our tests should get reimbursed at $20,000 per because that's how important it is? Yeah, I do. But you know what? We're not going to wait for that. And the idea is with technology, you ought to be able to get it to a value proposition that is really hard to argue for anybody. And that's what we've done. And as we've seen it start to take hold, it's been satisfying to see that move ahead and see that as a real possibility. The business model does work. And you know, because of the huge, huge unmet need out there in the world at large, it's going to make a ton of sense. It's going to be a lot of fun. What's really interesting is then as we have done that, you can start to see the cracks in the the institutional structure of the industry today, because when players are going out, delivering more and more value to customers, as opposed to bottling it up and writing down, you know, kind of gross profit elasticity to the extent that the market will bear, then you start seeing the structural components of the industry start to fall apart. And I think it's a good thing. Data moves more freely, more benefit accrues to patients than to all of the companies in a competition picks up dramatically. I mean, if you want my opinion, I think genetics was a cozy, nice academic kind of little bit of a cottage industry 10 years ago. Everybody had their own little area. It was super profitable. There was no competition. Back to our point about sequencing, competition is good. Again, if I may make a point, as an American industrialist, I worry now that the appreciation of competition is taking a backdrop to other concerns, whether it's the desire to make rampant profit in a certain industry sector, or whether it's xenophobia. And I think every American industrialist needs to remember competition is good. It's good for the industry. It's good for companies to be competitive. So that has been satisfying to see as we've started to move that. And you can actually start to see on an industry-wide level, a lot changing as the modes of competition change when it's not so much bottling up you know, the maximum profit you can make on a certain test or information set or therapy or delivery vehicle or you know what happens when you start addressing with technology every single friction point along the way to get the best care in the hands of the most people it's going to start changing medicine i mean it really is going to lead to you know all these sci-fi movies you see where people wave wands at people and diagnose them and then you know kids with leukemia go in in a clinic in 15 minutes they walk out without it i'm not saying all that can be reality but you know what some of it can 
And this is a question. Is it going to be 150 years from now or is it going to be 10 years from now or 20 years from now? That's a lot of time and a different approach can change the, you know, the time in which that becomes a reality. That's it for this week. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.